Welcome to the bonfire. Exploring magic with two modern witches. I am Corey. And I'm Detta. And we are very, very excited today because here in the virtual studio, we have with us the incomparable Fez Inkright of folk magic and healing and unusual history of everyday plants fame. And of her new book, Botanical Curses and Poisons, The Shadow Lives of Plants. We're very excited to have you here. It is nice to be here. Thank you. We are uh, speaking to you from the past because we are many, many hours different here. We really are very, very grateful that you made time for us in your day. So thank you so much. We promise we are going to actually get to an interview and let Fez speak. But first, Corey and I just want to tell you a little bit about some of the things we really loved about the books without revealing too much. Uh, I promise in about five minutes, you will hear Fez's voice again. So I love the fact, for one thing, the history in the book is amazing and all the stories that you tell at the beginning of the book, but also throughout, peppered throughout, along with specific plants. But I love the fact that you brought up the Christian verse about how thou shalt not suffer which to live didn't actually mean that it talked about it they were actually talking about poisoners uh, you have to read the book to find out more about why that is everyone and uh, the um birth wart it, and it, i was right i had read this first in your book and i'm going to the chestnut school and one of our lessons was on plants that get mistaken or have folklore around them that they're healing but they're actually poisonous and that was the very first one they addressed so That was just really exciting. It's just a fabulous book, and I love the first book as well. So with that said, I am going to throw it to Corey to ask the Mm -hmm. first question. I I have access to this book right now, which I loved, by the way. I'm a purist, and I don't write in my books. (laughs) So it's still crispy clean. Um, (laughs) And I have it bookmarked. I just wanted, you've like really nailed my aesthetic here. Um, I have it open. She's to, showing a picture of the skull and flowers in the first page, book. Page eighty-two, and it's for henbane. And I just wanted to say, like, I have a really hard time with like uh, manuals and, and guidebooks being inaccessible. And I love the way you've given different like avenues to learning about something, like how everything has a picture, how everything has like a poem about it, how everything has a little history, a little um, like it's got the common name and the Latin name. And and it's just so comprehensive and also a beautiful thing to look at. And so I just wanted to gush about that for a second. But my first question, I suppose, is what does the research process look like for you? Like, do you go out into the field a lot? Is a lot of reading from other books? Or do you have like your own, I don't know, garden of stuff? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of everything, really. <laughs> um, it's it's definitely a mishmash of, of different ways of research. Um, but I am a bookworm at heart, so I always start with books. Uh, and I think in having written two books about plants already, I've already got quite a big reference shelf 
of um, of books that address not just not just the subject that I talk about, but um, similar subjects that are kind of interlinked with it. So I always like to start by going through the books that I already have on hand, and really it's just an excuse to buy more books because who doesn't want to? <laughs> so so a lot of the times I'll end up going through uh, the bibliographies in the back of those, and I'll actually go and buy those books. I'll spend a lot of time in libraries as well. But you, you do end up branching out into a, a lot of other subjects. So for Botanical Curses, which is the book that's just come out now, um, I looked at books on forensics. I looked at books on feminism, uh, the, absor- uh, the absorption of early religions by the Christian church, on farming practices. You learn a lot of extra subjects while you're looking into this because everything is interlinked. Yeah. Like Our lives are so interlinked with the plants around us that pretty much anything you pick up is going to be touching on the subject anyway. But once I'm done with the books, I generally, I generally do then turn to fieldwork. Like I like being out and out and about. Obviously, this past year has been a bit different for for everyone, and I am I'm actually starting to work on on a new book, um, and I'm feeling very, very cooped up because I can't go out and go to the usual places where I would be going. Um, but usually, like one of my favourite places to go are the. I don't, it may be different in America, but here in the UK, we have a lot of tiny like town and village museums. They're the kind that they usually mm. run by volunteers and they live off of donations and you'll find them squished in between two other buildings and maybe they were converted yep. from like an old shed or an outbuilding. But the people yep. who run it are just really passionate and they're usually full of local lore and local information. And like whenever I'm traveling, even if I'm just visiting a friend, if it's a place I've never been before, I'll always try and find if they have those. And even if I'm not writing a book at the time, I'll just go in, I'll just be absorbing everything and making notes for if I ever do something on that subject in the future, it's, you know, it means that I've got it written down. And um, yeah, there are some really great places to get stuck into it. I remember when I went to Ireland for a couple of weeks, um, this is a few years ago now, but I found this beautiful place uh, in Innes um, called the Local Study Centre. And again, it's this old archive. It's this tiny little building, but it's got one of these big old wooden card catalogues um, where you pull out the little drawers and there's all these tiny cards with the subjects and the reference numbers. And then you take them to the librarian and they'll bring out these ancient old books. And they're just full of, um, full of books by local authors and with uh, local interest information. And that was a lot of fun because obviously you get to handle a load of old books, which is wonderful. Um, but actually a lot of local libraries around here all have local interest sections. And it's usually mm. full of ordnance survey maps or um, books that have been written by a guy who lives down the road. But because they're local authors, they have such localised knowledge. And I really love that. Um, I looked up the, uh, the local section in the town that I grew up in once. And there was like a little dictionary of all of the local dialect. And I suddenly found that I was learning about old words for hens and eggs and, and that kind of thing. And nothing that will ever come into early relevance in a, in a modern conversation, but I just love it. And that's, that's probably where I find a lot, of my, uh, a lot of the weird knowledge that I've picked up with time. But you know what? I feel like what you just said about those archaic words is I want that to come up in modern conversation. Mm. Words, words, words. I love talking about how they've changed, how they, what they mean now, what they meant then. Words that are like could now be used as Scrabble words and a lot of points that nobody else knows. <laughs> those are always really good as well. 
It's so funny that you mentioned the small little places. I don't know about you, Corey, but I ended up, I didn't know a lot about them and wasn't really interested in those little um, niche little places until I met my wife. And she loves that we, every town we visit, we find one of those and go. And we were in Ireland, not in Ennis, but found a couple of those great places. And same thing, being able to handle the old books. It's just starting. It's exciting. Starting to feel a little guilty. There's a there's a little. It's called the Log Cabin Museum in my hometown. Yeah. I have. There's no love lost when it comes to my my hometown, but uh, I feel like I should have probably checked it out now. <laughs> Maybe I will next time we're allowed to, you know, yeah. go out into the world. I also love the fact that you wrap that into your work. And it's almost like a liberal arts education that we're getting. Interdisciplinary. We... Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually one of those little local library sections that's responsible for these books in the first place. Um, I, I won't go too much into it because I know that between us we could probably talk about tabletop gaming for, for hours. But I, w- I used to live in Cambridge uh, for a brief while and I was in the, one of the Cambridge libraries and there was this little book about local lore and local legends and it was talking about how in in the fenlands which is the area sort of around cambridge and the and the surrounding counties one of the ways that they used to calm um colicky babies was to wrap poppy seeds in a bit of muslin dip it in tea and then let the baby suck on it which I bet they did. <laughs> meant that even though it, it soothed the babies it meant that a lot of young children and I think this was back in the 1600s or so, but a lot of young children grew up with um, opioid addictions because obviously they were ingesting this from a very young age. And I thought that was fascinating. And I actually set out originally to write a little pocket book for tabletop gamers as a guide to, you know, incorporating local fauna and flora into a gaming world. And that was where folk magic and healing originally came from. I just found the more I oh, no. the more I actually got into the researching because at the time I was like, oh, this will be like a little twenty eight page pocket booklet. It'll just be for players. And the more I researched, the more I thought, I'm really enjoying this. There's so much more to put in it. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it turned into the book you see today. So <laughs> it's all interlinked somehow. Oh wow. Well, that that leads to one. How did you? How did you get so fascinated? Where was your original fascination with plants? Was it through Dungeons and Dragons? And just FYI, everybody, we t- we had a little talk about tabletop um, gaming and Dungeons and Dragons before we started recording. So uh, we found out that you own your own shop. Is that right? I run an online store, yes. For tabletop gaming. So, Which I will and, be checking out. Uh, yeah, and we do need to. That <laughs> definitely needs to go in our spark this week is yeah, your we'll, store. We'll shout that out. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, is that is that how, probably not your original fascination with plants since you were bringing plants to the D&D world, but how did you get interested in plants? I've actually been interested since I was very, very young. Um, I grew up in the countryside, so I grew up in a county called Hampshire in, in England, which is one of the southern counties. So it's very uh, it's very gentle hills and valleys and chalk streams, so the rivers are just perfectly clear. It's full of forests. Um, it has the new forest in it, which a lot of people have heard of with the wild horses. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful place in the country. I'm slightly biased, but you know. Um, but my mum, my she encouraged me to be interested in the outdoors. So when I was when I was very small, we used to go out for walks in the forests and in the nature reserves. 
And she used to point out all the plants and, and tell me what they were called and what they were made of and why they were growing the way they did or any animals that we spotted as well. And she's actually, uh, she's a gardener. And I always joke that she's actually a dryad because her garden is stunning. It's beautiful. It's one of these ones that's very, very long, but quite narrow, but it goes right down to the river at the end of the garden. There's a little dock there and she gets otters. She has bats. She has ducks nesting in her cauliflowers you know it's it's just the most beautiful garden when you walk into it you think this is someone who really knows their plants and so when I when I moved out and got my first garden she was right there saying you know these are the plants you need in this area um, and it's it's through her mostly that that I picked up that attachment um, and growing up I ended up volunteering for conservation charities and a wildlife rescue center so I've always had that connection to the outdoors and to nature in general. And it's just nice to be able to now write about it in a relatable way that's getting people interested in it and mm-hmm. um, and finding out about plants that they might be overlooking, that they might dismiss as weeds and actually finding that there is that real rich kind of history and old superstitions and old kind of magic behind them. Because I think that's a really great way to get people to start caring about the land that's around them. That actually is like the most beautiful segue of all time into my next question, (laughs) which is, which is, what is one plant that nobody seems to know about that you wish that everybody knew about? You know what? You sent me these questions in advance, so I've had a chance to think about them. And you know what? This was the hardest one. This was the one that took me the longest. (laughs) Because I obviously having, having done research for these books, I'm coming across plants that I've never heard of before. And I could pick one that I think is really unusual that I've never heard of, but I bet no matter what I mention, people in the country where it grows would say like, oh, that's really common here. I know that one already. (laughs) I remember the last time I visited the US, I got really excited over grackles, either the black birds that you guys have, because I've never seen them before. And I thought they were beautiful. I love corvids anyway, and I don't actually know if they're really corvids or not, but they look like one and they're just beautiful. And uh, I think I'd gone to to a Walmart to pick up some some bits, and I stopped someone in the in the parking lot, and I said, "I'm really sorry. What kind of bird is that? It's beautiful." And they just looked at me, like, uh, "Yeah, we hate them. There's loads of them." <laughs> and I just thought, "But I love them. I don't know what they are." <laughs> so I imagine it's it's probably the same for plants. Um, so I had to think about it, and um, so I picked a UK one, uh, and it's called the spindle tree. It, it isn't hugely common over here. Um, it's more common in ancient woodland areas. So in places like Hampshire, where we have a lot of, of old forests, we get quite a few of them. Um, and they have these, they're not that distinctive looking when they're in leaf and when they're in flower, but when they go over to berry, they're really distinctive. Like the, the fruits themselves are this bright, vibrant pink. And when they're ripe, they burst open and the seeds inside are bright orange and they've got this wonderful kind of 80s disco vibe they're really distinct (laughs) um but i i mention them only because obviously i'd I'd grown up seeing them and i'd always thought these are so wacky and i absolutely love them and my my mum still lives in the town that i grew up in and i went to visit her a few years ago and we went for a walk in this park that we always go around and it's a great place in that it's got um it's got wild plums and it's got sloes and blackberries like it's a great place to go foraging mm. and the spindle tree was in was in fruit 
And and I use the word fruit very loosely. Do not eat them at all. Um, I, I was just going to yeah, ask. But I, you know, I, I remember saying to my mum, oh, you know, I really love the spindle tree. I wonder if you can grow it. And so I, I took a couple of the berries and I put them in my pocket. And I thought, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try it. And I took them home. And one of the guides that I'd read about it said, dry them. So I put them on like a little um, a plate on the windowsill. And around that time... Um, I can't remember what I what I put it down to at the time, but I started getting violently sick, like like I was not well for about a week, and I was thinking this can't be food poisoning. You know what what's wrong with me? Do I have to go to the doctors? And and I suddenly realised that <laughs> when I was researching botanical curses, in one of the books that I picked up, it said spindle tree, highly poisonous. <laughs> Wash your hands after oh, handling wow. the seeds. And I just hadn't. I just assumed I know what I'm doing. I, you know, I've written books on plants. I know how to handle plants. I'm fine. <laughs> and I hadn't. I just, I completely disregarded my own advice. And because I had been handling these and I hadn't properly washed my hands afterwards, uh, it had been making me really sick. And so, oh my goodness. So almost in in a fit of uh, personal, I felt offended by this. So in a fit of rage, I threw them out. I said, I'm not going to grow you. <laughs> Did you end up having to go to the doctor or anything, or did it just work its way out of your system? Yeah, it, it went away straight away. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So luckily, it was a it was a very uh, sort of flash in the pan illness, but it's they're a very um, a very strong purgative, and they will just make you vomit wow. all over the place. So, admire them from a distance. They're beautiful. <laughs> just don't touch the berries. I've learned my lesson on that one. Gloves. Yeah, maybe bring a boombox and you know dance around it with some '80s music there. I love that. Exactly. I feel like it's it's a bit of an embarrassing wow. thing to admit having written a book on poisonous plants and then to admit that I've poisoned myself. No, <laughs> I no, not at all. I I I think it's a wonderful cautionary tale and good to heed that advice. Is like you know we all make mistakes and just be extra i'm sure i have overdosed on licorice tea we've talked about that in the past yeah (laughs) i think it's important too to remember like no matter how much you think you know about something you still gotta be careful Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you'll still you'll still mess up sometimes don't get too cocky you shared that (laughs) yeah Here's the other thing that I loved that you mentioned in your book, uh, two things, that are the daffodils mm. being poisonous. It was like, what is daffodil doing in this book? But also, back to the spindle tree, too, the hellborn is in both of your books. Mm. It's in the one for folk magic and healing, but mentions it's poisonous, and then you go in depth in it in um, botanical curses. And I think that's also really important to remember is that they can be both, and you have to just be very careful of the dosage. And who would have thought handling the tree? I have to say, even though you wrote about that and knew that, I don't know that I would have thought just handling the seed would make you that sick. So yeah, it's yeah. it's amazing um, just how different plants can be in terms of how poisonous they are. So you mentioned daffodils; they're in there because I find them interesting, and they are toxic. Mm-hmm. They're only really toxic if you eat the bulbs, and no one's ever going to do that. So it's very hard to actually poison yourself with a daffodil. But then there are some plants in there um, that actually it's quite dangerous even just to park your car underneath the tree, because if it rains while the car is underneath it, it's been known to strip the paint from the cars. Holy moly. Because just being near to it, it's so toxic, it can actually cause that sort of damage. So there is a variety of plants in there from the 
I'm never going to put that in my mouth anyway to the I wasn't aware to to avoid that one. (laughs) Well, which brings me to the Hunger Games moment, all those copycat berries and such like that. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, one of the things I wrote to Fez, I was like, Fez, do you know anything about the berries (laughs) that they use in the Hunger Games? And do you know anything about those berries? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually think the Hunger Games is a a fantastic... um, it's a fantastic example, whether you've read it or not. Um, so obviously I, I will not touch on any spoilers if you haven't, um, but mm-hmm. for anyone who for some reason hasn't read the books or seen the movies or even heard about what they're about, um, it introduces a group of people who are put in a wild area and left to survive. And and the great thing is, is that a lot of the challenge that are presented to the characters in these books prey on our fear of the wildness of nature and what it can do to us. Because mm-hmm. one of the great things about the wilds is that we as humans, there's very little that actually threatens us. We're very good at looking out for ourselves. We've made sure to, you know, in populated areas, we've wiped out all the other predators. And yeah. you know, we're, we're very careful about making sure that we are safe. So I think there's something built into us that kind of gets a little bit of a thrill about the idea that we could be out somewhere where we're actually in danger, because that doesn't happen to us very often. And and I think Hunger Games does a very good job in doing that. So, I mean, you mentioned the, the Nightlock berries. So these mm-hmm. berries that feature in the book are meant to be so deadly that they kill a person before they even reach the stomach. There are very few things that are actually that deadly. And is that one honestly that deadly? Or is that just her capitalizing on that fear? Possibly. I mean, there are some plants that they can cause your throat to close up. Or they can mm-hmm. cause heart palpitations. They they can kill you, but usually it has to be ingested and then actually into your bloodstream before it actually makes mm-hmm. an effect. Um, but I think, so I did a little research into, into the nightlock berries and... One of the theories, and I, I agree with this, I think the name's based on Deadly Nightshade and Hemlock, yeah. which are two very well-known um, poisonous plants. The berries of the nightshade, the way that the, the nightlock berries are presented in the movie look very much like nightshade berries. They're shiny and they're yeah, black. They, do. they actually look very appealing. They look like little dark blueberries, maybe. Um, nightshade itself is actually really interesting because the, the berries grow together on one stalk, but despite how close they grow, they can actually be completely different in terms of their toxicity. So you could eat one and it could do absolutely nothing to you. And then you could eat the one right next to it and it could kill you. I did not know that. They're really unreliable in terms of you know, whether you can or not. That's not to say you should ever eat them because they're, you, you know, know, they're, they're no, not. Don't but, be um, but yeah, so he- um, hemlock, which is the other plant that is mentioned, is famous, one of its most famous um, historical points is that it was used in the execution of the famous philosopher Socrates Mm -hmm. who was ordered to drink um, uh, the water of the plant to um, to kill himself basically and he was executed for questioning the gods and for corrupting the youth of Athens and there is a character in the Hunger Games who is given these nightlock berries to end his own life for the exact same reason so it's mm-hmm. really nice to actually see that when these books were written, that those kind of histories were actually taken into account and merged into this brilliant um, new fictional plant, which has which has the properties of these real life plants. 
Hemlock was actually the first poison I was ever aware of in my young life because of the Socrates story. So that's the first poison. Yeah, and she, this particular author, her name is... Suzanne Collins. Thank you. And she talks about poisons and uses poisons a lot, as does a lot of literature, uh, like white oleander and all that. And I think you're right. I think a lot of times it is used to terrify and threaten and say, you know, this is bad. Whereas if you have the knowledge of it, you can avoid it or use it or not that I'm um, advocating using poisons. Let me let me walk that back really fast there. <laughs> so, Corey, what was the first poison you were aware of in like consciously? Do you know? Uh, I'm trying to think. I I was a total like scaredy baby as a kid. Um, not at all like I am now, where I'm like whatever yellow. Um, but when I was a kid, I was a big scaredy baby, and so if somebody said something was dangerous, I was like, oh, better not go near that ever. And so I just didn't learn about it. Um, my first like real interest in poisons. I'm a big fan of historical fiction, particularly during like Renaissance Italy and that kind of time period. Um, so my first uh, introduction into like really thinking about poisons was getting really, really heated and steamed about um, women and poisons and, uh, get me, get me started on that. Um, but my mom's a nurse. So like my first introduction to poisons was always like, don't eat that. It will make you sick when it came to like chemicals or, or medicines or things like that. We were very conscious of that. Um, which is just, you know, compounds taken from other places and sometimes plants to like make those things and they would make you sick um but when i think of poisons i think of i think of feminism yeah (laughs) well and and if you read fez's book she talks you talk about that right at the at the very beginning about what started happening in the 1300s and how related I, I, I want you to read the book, so I don't want to say what it is, but there's a great line that you say in there about what someone else says in a very popular book about yeah. women <laughs> and poisons. So just read it. <laughs> and you're going to... When we did our potions episode, uh, I got so angry uh, because like when you look at like famous potion makers... It's like all women who like saved a bunch of lives and were then killed by the church. And it's like, come on now. <laughs> I had to resist um, very strongly to make the book more about witchcraft and early witch hunts and and women's role. I say women's roles as poisoners very loosely, but the way that they have been uh, represented throughout history. I actually had to put a, note, a post-it note on my wall next to my computer <laughs> to remind myself that this book is not about witches <laughs> to not write too much about witches there still ended up being a big old chapter about it which i had to edit very heavily and take out large chunks because i was thinking i'm getting onto a completely different subject here <laughs> so i mean luckily luckily witchcraft as you say um and and women and feminism is very related to poisons 
in a historical mm-hmm. manner. Um, so luckily it was something that I was able to put into the book, but the whole way through I had to keep reining myself in and think, this this, this should be a future book. I need to be good about I was this. just going to say, yay, yeah. this is a future book we can look forward to. <laughs> I, I say that loosely, it may be a future book. But I would love to write about it. But firstly, it's not particularly in my wheelhouse, and I know there are some amazing historians out there who've really done their research, so I wouldn't want to step on their toes. And also I know that I have so many books about witches already that I think, well, I'd love to write this, but is there any point writing a book that's already out there? So unless there was like a really unique edge to it that I could take, unfortunately I think that is probably something that I I wouldn't ever write about. But to read about it, I absolutely love it. I think it's a fascinating subject. Super fascinating because it's it's so it's such a it's just like how plants are sort of touch everything. The idea of of witches or women who poison like poisoners, it sort of touches all these different um, disciplines like politics and and socioeconomics and religion. It's all built into. Let's twist the fact that this is a great like a secret graceful very smart way to i i'm saying not advocating this to poison (laughs) someone like that's a super smart effective way to handle a situation whereas like the traditional men's way to do that was like sword (laughs) and so instead of being like that's incredible let's demonize these people instead um for having the audacity to be smarter than us yeah (laughs) i have a lot of feelings about that (laughs) i think there is a a very and i say this lucy because i know that there probably are a lot of men listening to this podcast as well and you know I, i don't want to sound as though i'm going against them but there is a very historically a very male fear of women as poisoners and mm-hmm. it dates to pre-Roman times. It it crops up in literature and writings for hundreds of years, thousands of years. I think poison was seen as a weapon for the weak against the strong. It's you know it's invisible, it's untraceable, or at least it was in in very early times. We're getting a lot better at identifying mm-hmm. poisons, but mm-hmm. historically it was very hard to trace and actually tell what had killed someone. So I think there's that fear. Especially when, yeah. you know, when you realise that, that that wife you've been mistreating for years or, you know, that, that daughter that you forced to marry that man who she really hated, you know, that suddenly they have... It doesn't matter if they're not strong enough to lift a sword or if they've never been trained to use a bow and arrow. Suddenly they have this power that they can grow in their gardens that is a beautiful mm-hmm. flower that no one's going to suspect is deadly, that they can slip into your food which they're preparing. Yeah. And, and yeah, like you mentioned, there are, there are quite a... A number of good quotes in the book that have been written by people saying how women have this this natural addiction to poisons and this natural kind of attraction to plants and it's very true that historically women have had access to these because they've had to find ways around you know i I can't necessarily stab this person in broad daylight and get away with it but there is a way that i can level the playing field with these poisons and it's very much a stereotype that still exists today as well I think even in yeah. even in modern media, like a couple of hundred years ago, Shakespeare loved his witches and plants. And yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, and and in many shows or books, even now, like when when a woman's killing a husband or a brother or an enemy, it's it's always poison. Like Game of Thrones, Cersei and her husband, and mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned White Oleander, which is a wonderful book. That was a woman killing off her partner. Yeah. Uh, Medea in Greek mythology, Poison Ivy in Batman. I think um, Cluedo, I, you may call I think you call it Clue in America, 
Uh, but they introduced yeah. a new character recently called Dr. Orchid, who is a female oh. botanist, evil scientist, poisons her enemies. It just pops up everywhere in media. There's something so like witchcraft about that, because we talk about how when traditionally, historically, women and femmes, every other avenue of power and strength is cut off to them. So they've made incredible strides with the things that they have access to. And no one's there's a line in a knight's tale where she says better a silly girl with a flower than a silly boy with a horse and a stick and like i know that that's supposed to just be like a funny line but i'm like really though like better a silly girl with a flower because she knows what to do with it and um it's witchcraft is like that it's like we didn't have anything else so we built up and nurtured and manifested our own power instead which is why i love reading about your plants because i love to garden and it makes me feel powerful i also think it plays into your title to the shadow life of of plants because women had to and again i do agree and we do have men listening and and there's a great uh play called the dying gall where a man does actually use poison so go read that play by craig lucas because it is the the shadow and you're in the shadows and you had to stay in the shadows and had to not be seen or you were persecuted. On that note, how and when did you first discover or realize that plants had shadow lives? Well, I think, um, Corey, you mentioned earlier how one of your your first realizations that plants could be poisonous was when your, your mum warned you against them. When you were younger it was like that for me as well obviously my mum was out in the garden quite a lot we went out in, into the forest and into the wilds and so she warned me and she'd say you know don't eat these ones don't eat those ones naturally the first thing i did when i was not being supervised was i went out and ate them and got sick so oh, no. <laughs> trial, trial and error i was not a smart child <laughs> if i was told not to do something i would do it so that's me now <laughs> so you know i, I tested everything but so I was always aware, obviously, that, that some plants are poisonous. Um, but in terms of like an, an academic side of it and wanting to write about it, it came about during the research for my first book, Folk Magic and Healing, uh, which is predominantly about plants with medicinal value, mm-hmm. which, as I mentioned earlier, I was writing as like a guide for gamers originally. And I was thinking these are things that you can use and not just gamers, but actually writers, artists, people who are creative and, and want to tell stories. I was thinking there are some great stories behind these and plants can be medicinal and I wanted to share that. So I set out with the plant, with the idea of writing this book about, you know, presenting medicinal plants. But as I was doing the research and as I was going through my list of plants and coming up with new ones, I kept coming across these great articles about black magic or curses or toxic plants, which I couldn't put in there. And I was thinking, but this is great. Yeah. People want to read this. And, and personally, I've always loved the horror genre. And I've always loved like the weird and morbid stuff as well. So so I kind of set them aside. And at the time, I just thought, well, one, one day, one day I'll do something with it. And uh, once Folk Magic and Healing was out, and publishers basically said, oh, do you have anything else in mind? I was like, well, I have this entire <laughs> article. And in fact, <laughs> when I was writing Botanical Curses, I had so many that I actually had to cut out almost half of all of the research that I've done. So if you look at the book, it's a fairly chunky book, but I had double that amount that I actually had to take I would read double that out. amount. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> just FYI, I would. I would read double this amount. I love it so much. It's, it's quite nice in a way, though, because there's, uh, like, I predominantly use Twitter on social media. And every Thursday, uh, there's a hashtag called Folklore Thursday, where they, uh, they set, like, a subject and people share information, um, like, share folklore tales or myths and legends based on that subject. So every time a plant-related one comes up, I'm actually going into the, the articles that I cut out of the books that never really made it into the books and talking about those as well. I feel like that's a nice way to share it. That's awesome. I'd love that. You talked a lot about your mom's garden and when you moved out, you had her help you with your garden. What is something like, what does your dream garden look like? (laughs) My dream garden is my mom's garden. (laughs) I talk about her a lot. She actually, we were on the phone the other day and I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you guys. She's like, I've never listened to one of your podcasts. Send them to me. So I'm sending her the links, but I think you're just going to realize how much I talk about you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um no i'm, I'm hi very, mom <laughs> hi mom <laughs> i'm very lucky that uh the house that i'm in at the moment actually has a huge garden and it's it's kind of in the process of of being done ever so slowly um but i i love wild gardens cultivated ones are beautiful but for me it's all about encouraging wildlife and creating little like havens for them especially since i live in a city there's not as much of an opportunity for them to find the right places to nest, to eat, to be hunting. So I actually have uh, trail cameras in my garden and I've caught foxes and badgers and hedgehogs and birds of prey. Like it's, it's like a soap opera out there every night, like every morning I'll come in and I'll say, what's gone on? And I'll see like, there's a fox chasing off a badger and there's a, a hawk dismembering a sparrow. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, slightly morbid but I love it it's really nice to actually see that what I have done in the garden is encouraging to come in Um, so for me it's just it's slightly overgrown it's a lot of native plants Um, things like uh, weeds as well like dandelions I love dandelions and teasel me too thistles they're not the kind of thing that most people would encourage in their gardens but they're such great food for birds and for bats and for all the pollinators that you need so for me, it's it's something that when you go out there in the summer, you can hear the bees and you can see, you know, you see all the the insects go flying around. And for me, that's like the perfect garden, just like a little wild haven. I think dandelion has a bad PR rep. I'm just saying. Mm, dandelions are fascinating. Yeah. And, and again, <laughs> I love them. Very good for you as well. They're, they're full of iron yep. and full of good, good vitamins. Very good in salads. <laughs> <laughs> really cleanse that liver. Corey and I have talked about Alexander the Great in the past. Is he great? Is he not? He just has a good he has a good PR rep. Is he great? We don't know. And one of the plants that I just recently discovered and I foolishly bought before realizing how poisonous it was is in both of your books. It's Hellborn yeah. and Hellborn is supposedly uh, what we think might have killed Alexander the Great. So I just I loved all that interweaving there. But they're beautiful. They're absolutely, and they're flowering right now in the middle of winter. They're so pink and pretty. Yeah. Mm. I have and, a number of hellebore we'll, in my garden. I just love them. Do you? I think they're beautiful. Even though technically they are poisonous, most animals avoid them. No one really touches yeah. them. So I figure that's not bad to have them around. We have a bunny that runs around in the yard, and, and I immediately, I went, oh my gosh, I 
put put some of them up where they they can't reach them but i had put a cage around one of them and and somebody somebody said the same thing said rabbits aren't that dumb she's not going to bother it (laughs) trust me humans are the only ones dumb enough and i can attest to that yeah okay Um, we on this podcast are a big fan of another podcast called In Defense of Plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think about it constantly when we talk to people like you who know so much, like when we were talking to Ida, we, like, uh, Gutter Bruja, when we did that interview, we, I thought about this podcast a lot and he talks about, his name's Matt, and he talks about, uh, plant blindness and advocates for learning everything you can about the local flora around you. And he talks, uh, when he does episodes about poisons, he talks about um, the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose. Yeah. And so when you were talking about how you had stuff that you were putting in your folk magic and healing book and you were like, but wait, I, 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 I poison though. And it's like the same, it's like the same thing. And, and I think that that's really interesting. And I think that that makes, um, not to like promote your stuff for you, but I think that makes them really good. <laughs> sort of companion pieces to each other. Um, I'm excited to have a copy of each on my bookshelf, partly because they're beautiful and partly because I would like to cross-reference them. They are gorgeous. They're wow. beautiful the, books. Oh, my goodness. The the putting them in the light and the reflections and Ugh. your artwork. Your artwork. Thank you. Oh, man. <laughs> they're Thank a you. truly, sensorily speaking, they're a beautiful book. The oh. The paper is like, that nice quality of paper is like thick and you you know that if it like you take it out in the garden with you it will survive it it's like it's such a nice book <laughs> thank you then nice for such a nice books. book <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the official release date for botanical curses and poisons is february 11th couple days from now, if you're listening to this on February 9th when we release this episode. You included Oem at the beginning of your first book, Folklore and Magical Healing. I'm wondering what inspired you to include the lore of the Celts. Well, I think it's hard to research botanical folklore and not end up mentioning the Celts. To be perfectly honest, uh, I mean, the Celtic nations, they spread across the British Isles and a large part of Europe. Like, I think a lot of people, when they mention Celts, they're just referring to the Irish and the Scottish clans. But it, it was a, a large, um, it was a it was a branch term that was used for a large group of people. The Irish and the Scottish Celts, I think they stick in people's mind the most because they are, they're more regularly discussed since their beliefs were better recorded. And I think a lot of the beliefs are still used in modern neo-paganism as well. So it's very easy to find that information out there. Um, And I think a lot of early belief systems, and this isn't just the Celts, this is across, across Europe, in fact, across the world, they're all focused on nature. I think we as humans are farmers at heart. Farming in the agricultural industry is what made us human. It's, it's what made us so successful and made us able to have the, the resources that we needed to grow as a species and to develop our cultures further. So I think that coming up with systems to memorise what to plant and when was essential for very early humanity. And I think it also inspires respect for the environment, as well as warnings about the dangers of, again, which plants not to eat, 
or you know where you might be more likely to come across wild animals or dangerous weather systems so a lot of the deities and a lot of the stories and the spirits that are talked about in in early cultures they're all related to nature and most of them focus around the farming year and you can find similar stories across like the baltic regions and the germanic regions and the more that you research into it you'll find that every country has these belief systems that have nature gods or harvest gods or you know spirits that you would pray to to help for a good harvest or to keep blight away so i wouldn't necessarily say that i was drawn to celtic lore before any of the others but just that it is one of the best recorded and it's one of the ones that i think a lot of people know of whether you are you know whether you're spiritual whether you're into plants whatever your background i think a lot of people have heard of things like the Ogham calendar, which is the, the calendar of trees, so where every month was ascribed to a tree or a plant and had certain meanings put behind it. So I always think it's it's worth mentioning those because for a lot of people it's just a good grounding point of here's something I've heard of but I don't necessarily or perhaps may not know more about it. I knew about trees and like them being attributed to parts of the year, but like really peripherally. Like I think I took a quiz one time in a magazine that was like, which tree are you? And I got, I don't remember what I got. And now I'm like looking, I'm like having a recovered memory about that being like, oh, they, they pinched that from mm. the calendar of the trees. And um, I think that that's such a cool thing that it like endures in like little ways that we don't necessarily notice. Um, so to have it so clearly written out is very, very handy. You're very welcome. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those that even though it's included in the, uh, in the book, and I say that Celtic lore is, is very well recorded, even that we don't have an exact answer for. Um, so there are several versions of the Ogham calendar out there. One of them, I think, has been taken from um, some records that were found inscribed on stones. I can't remember the names of them, but it is believed to be like the very first written down calendar. Um, and some of them are ones that have been rewritten for a more modern, um, for more modern belief systems. So you will find actually when you look it up, if you ever do more research into it, you'll find that some months have like two different plants ascribed to them because it's depending on which calendar you follow. So there are differences, mm. and and as with anything that is so old, there will always be varieties that come up in translations. Thinking mostly back to our, our earlier discussion about the, the Bible and witchcraft, you know, there's a lot that gets lost in translation, and yeah. King James did a number on that book, or his translators did just, yeah. And not even King James, like the early Greek translations as well, that are much, much older. There are so many mistranslations in, in everything, in every religious text, whether it is, you know, a calendar of trees or whether it is the Bible, there are always going to be varieties, which is, again, why it's so interesting to write it out in a book, because then you can discuss, well, this is what this translation is, and this is this one, and, and here's how they could have become mixed up. See, I love that. It just fills my soul to talk about all this. Denna loves plants. If you sign up for our newsletter, one whole page is Detta's plant spotlight. In the very first newsletter that we did, I sent her three pages on mistletoe, and Corey was like, yeah. um, Detta? I was like, the whole the whole newsletter is three pages, so... See, you should be writing your own book. You know, 
I feel like I I think you've done a very <laughs> good job of that. And I, I'll leave that to you. It's like, do I really have anything to add to that conversation? Just like you said <laughs> earlier. And nope, Fez has covered that. I'm good. Hey, Fez. What are your favorite fictional <laughs> stories about or not about plants? I mean, there's, there's loads. I mean, I, I read a lot of books and I watch a lot of TV in the background while I'm working. So so I had quite a few. I had to narrow it down. Um, I know I've mentioned this one in particular. I've mentioned in previous interviews, but I always have to give a nod to uh, an author called Brian Jacks and the Red Wall series. So I, I don't mm. know how popular it may have been over in the US, but he was an, an English writer. He passed away quite recently, which was very sad, but he... He wrote this this incredible fantasy series. I think it's like sixteen books long or something, and it's it's aimed at youngish children. I think maybe sort of eight to twelve years old, but he he never simplified things down. He never used simple language, and he talked about the horrors of war, and he got into some really dark subjects. But he he personally believed that children needed to be exposed to that, and that they they would read at a level that they felt comfortable reading. Um, but these books were, they were based in the British woodlands and they had these beautiful descriptions of the, of the environment and, and they were all about um, woodland animals. So you had, it was based around this abbey that was inhabited by mice and moles and hedgehogs and, and they all went around their daily lives and there were battles with stoats and weasels and they're just really fantastic books. But he was the one who introduced to me the idea of plants as medicine. He used to invo- he used to include in the books like a lot of poems and songs that he would write himself and he had this one poem, um, I can't remember, I think it was from the Tagarung, which was a poem all about the plants and how they could be used to heal people. And I think I was about eight when I read this and it just stuck in my brain and I was like, that that's amazing, I know about plants, but I had no idea that you know this was actually a thing and at first i thought that's fantasy he's made that up and then the more i looked into it, i was like no this is real this is like real life magic i kind of love that so for me those are like the ultimate the ultimate ones um and i i always have to mention those in interviews because i just feel like he he in those books really guided this passion of mine and, and obviously got me to where i am today so thank you brian <laughs> Um, but I think um, I was trying to think of another one because I thought well I always talk about Red Wall series and there must be something else out there and I recently read and this is only I say semi-fictional it's a mythology so obviously fictional but um, there was a book I read recently by Madeline Miller called Circe which is all about uh, the Greek goddess Circe who's the daughter of uh, Helios and Hecate and she was the goddess of witchcraft and poisons. So she was she was banished to an island for being a witch. And the story, so the story goes that whenever men would come to her island, she would seduce them and then use her potions to turn them into animals. This is thinking back of our earlier conversation. This is obviously a very um, directed story. <laughs> But, uh, but I, what I loved about Madeline Miller's version was it looked at her as a woman and how she could have been driven to that point and presents, you know, these people who she did turn into animals, 
not as people who she just took against, but the people who threatened her and who threatened her way of life. And to me, like that book, it just, it perfectly embodied how a lot of women have been, um, have been talked down about and turned into monsters and turned into witches and sorceresses. <laughs> Medusa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a fantastic... The mythology, um, when she's mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, is a really great story anyway, but I really loved mm-hmm. uh, Madeleine Miller's version where it looks deeper into it and looks at her as a woman and not just a, a bad person. And I think Madeleine Miller's other book, Is It Medusa? She's written two that are that have done quite well. Yes, uh, it's the story of Troy. Yeah, the story of Troy, I thank you. Well. I can't remember the title of Me it off either. the top of my head, but... I love her writing. It's fantastic. I know what I have on my read list. (laughs) (laughs) Highly recommended. It's wonderful. That's great. Oh, those are great ones. Secret of Nim reminds me of Brian's books as well. Uh, I don't know if you know that story at all. I've read... I know of it, but I haven't read it. The secret, the secret of Nim is something they would put on in elementary school. They'd pop the VHS and the TV on the trolley and like roll it into the front of the classroom and sit you down to watch it, and then you'd be traumatized for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not realizing how subversive the book is. Same, same, same with Brian's books. I think really subversive, and it's like, yeah, kids should know this, and maybe it will impact them to change change what those adults are doing so yeah (laughs) i think a lot of books have been slipped under under the door yeah under the guise of being um for children like i remember (laughs) this may be off topic but when i was when i was quite a bit younger i was really into the animorph series oh yeah (laughs) like and when you think about them you think oh they're 80s and the horrible photoshopping on the covers but again i remember um i read an interview with the author and they were saying how, and for anyone who hasn't read the Animorphs, again, it's about children who are thrown into like an intergalactic war. I don't know and this one. It's, wow. <laughs> I don't remember much about it, but I do remember really enjoying it as a child. And and I never read all the way to the end because I think I just outgrew them. There's like but, a thousand of them too. Yeah, there are, there are so many of them. <laughs> they're a little bit like goosebumps, like they're quite thin and and there's many of them. But apparently at the ending, like several of the characters die and two of the characters who've been in a relationship the whole way through who are like the golden children they break up and a load of people were really offended by this they're like but what about our happy ending and so there was this interview that they did with the author who basically said well the whole story has been about telling children about the horrors of war and discouraging them from just joining the army for the glory that it's promoted for and, you know, people do get together during war because they're uncertain about the future and then at the end they might break up or people yeah. die and so characters will die. And so I feel like if my if my parents had known I was reading books that were... So I remember they were quite dark in places. Mm-hmm. I think if my, if my parents had ever picked up those books and flicked through, they would have thought, she's never reading these again, they're terrible. But because they're, they're marketed as children's books, I think a lot of adults don't think to really check what's in them. But yeah. at the same time, I think that's great. I think it is important for children to be reading those things. And and actually, they can judge what's too dark for them and what's too much for them. So, yeah, I was I was always very fa- fond of the Redwall books. But I do remember as a child a couple of times thinking, that's really dark. <laughs> 
And I remember in particular, I think there was one bad guy who was a fox and he wore a mask all the time. And then you find out like at some point the mask gets ripped off and he's like missing his lower jaw and his tongue's hanging out and and all that kind that. of stuff. Yeah, and I just remember oh. at the time of thinking, that's, that's, that's horrifying. There was like one weasel who threw, who threw his child down into a pit of snakes to be eaten alive and... It was yeah. <laughs> There's That's a... probably where this morbid morbid love comes from. <laughs> There's an animated film that I can't remember the name of. It's not Nim, but it has. It's basically about these woodland creatures who, I just remember very vividly. There was um, a scene where they're trapped in a cage, like they get trapped in like a forest trap. One of the the like elder animals creates a a soup. Um, to heal one of the rodents that had been poisoned by the gas canister. And I remember watching that when I was little. First of all, being horrified that human beings would ever do that to animals. And second, that she had made him a potion and it Mm. had healed him. And she made it out of plants. Like you watch her like grinding up the plants in the bowl and and, um, it's... Now I want to know what that is. Woodland creatures as a parable Mm. for humanity. Woof. It's, it's interesting you say that, actually. Um, I don't know if this may be the same thing, but I remember when I was a child, obviously, as I mentioned, I was really into conservation and animals. And it feels like when I was when I was in my early teens and perhaps before, probably before then, there was a real um, an increase in media for children that discussed this. Like I was really into finding like Fern Gully. Yeah, Fern Gully, oh. Farthingwood, again, I think that was a UK thing where it was all about woodland creatures that got flushed out of their home mm-hmm. when they built a housing estate. And I think literally in the in the first few episodes, a couple of them get run over by cars, one of them falls into a cattle grate and drowns. Like it and it's all about them moving into a different wood and like trying to find a new home for themselves. And that was all about animals getting into, you know, um, coming across the, the problems with being in close communication with humans. And then there was, uh, this was one that came over to the UK, but the Silver Brumby, which oh. I think was an Australian one, which was again about a wild horse who I think was like lost their herd or something because humans had captured them all and sold them off to the meat market. <laughs> you know, there, there were a lot of things that were coming out at this period. And then you had um, uh, Watership Down. Yeah. As oh well, God. Which That's was depressing. actually, it was written ten minutes away from my hometown, really? and we used to actually go for walks along Watership Down, and you could like take the map in the book and follow it and everything, which. Really great walk, but when you think about it, you're like, oh, that's really dark, actually. Oh, it is so dark. <laughs> but, oh. But there was definitely that real kind of trend at the time, I think, for raising awareness. I think of the plight of wildlife yeah. through. Yeah media that was aimed at children which was very once interesting upon a, once upon a forest is the name of the movie that i was thinking oh, of yeah. it came out in 1993 and wrecked my shit for like a year and a half <laughs> the 90s were rough <laughs> they, were they were rough, rough. man <laughs> i was five when that movie came out and i think i watched it when i was about five and i just remember thinking not for the last time in my life wow humans suck big time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine what kids from today are going to be saying in 20 years about, yeah, the 20s, this really sucked. Those were really rough times. (laughs) And we're going to go, yeah. 
yeah, it, it does make me wonder if perhaps children who are like five to ten years old now, like if there is media that's still aimed at them, yes. that sends the same message. Obviously, I'm not a child anymore, so I don't really engage in any of that. But I watch a lot of cartoons, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of media right now, and what it is mostly targeted at is love and acceptance, but not in like a trite way, in like a real. Um, in a way that sort of turns away from ableism and like the ideal of anything like Steven Universe has a wide variety of characters that run the queer gamut that run the like body image um Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts oh my god the f- the soundtrack alone just bangers up and down but like it's it's about transformation and Mm -hmm. friendship and and perseverance and acceptance and truth and i think that a lot of animated particularly media right now is in the way that when we were young it was about save the planet right now it's about save human like the humanity of us all it's been amazing i think over the last four years how many cartoons i have seen or animation i've seen that really is focusing on ableism specifically Mm -hmm. and and just normalizing people in in wheelchairs and normalizing people um that are with all different bodies yeah all different bodies all different bodies, all different colors. And all I can think is if when I was little, if I had had that access to that, I would, and I'm going to say this in a very offhand way, because that's just how I deal. I'd hate myself a lot less if I had had that kind of like, you know, I wouldn't have to be doing the work of totally untangling myself if I had Mm -hmm. had access (laughs) to all of that stuff when I was young. But I did have the benefit of Watership Down (laughs) ruining my life for a couple of months after we watched it in school. Oh, God, that story is sad. You guys all talked about some D&D stuff which may, uh, before we started recording, and I actually have that recorded on Zoom. So I may do some outtakes <laughs> of that if the both of you are all right with that uh, and put I... that out as a bonus app. Uh, but anything you want to say about uh, your online store and what you have coming up maybe publishing-wise, Fez? Because we'd yeah, love to hear. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, well, let's let's start with the publishing wise because that's okay. probably more relevant to this to this episode. Oh, don't be um, so sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I am currently working on an oracle deck. Um, I I am I'm still learning my way uh, through tarot and oracles. It's it's something that. I haven't known much about before I actually started publishing books through Liminal and they do some phenomenal tarot decks like their decks are stunning yeah and they they asked me after I had it literally I think it was it was about a month before I finished writing botanical curses and they said hey we'd really like you to do an oracle deck do you want to and at the time I was I was in full crunch time for botanical curses I was like I don't want to think about it let me finish this right now first but then once it was over I was like that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, so um, it's actually, I think it's already on pre-order, so you can go to the website. So the publisher is called Liminal11. Uh, so liminal11.com. And you can pre-order it. It's called The Seed and Sickle. And it is, it's basically using plants through the um, the year of harvest 
So starting with the planting and ending with the harvesting of hard work. And each each card has two meanings. So whether you are um, whether you are rising, so you are working hard, so you are growing, or whether you are resting, which is focusing more on your mental health and taking time for yourself, each card will have its own meaning depending on like which which end of the the metaphorical planting year you are at. Um, but it's it's basically using a lot of the folklore that I've researched with these plants um, and turning it into imagery. And I'm, I'm really happy with them, actually. It's been quite nice because uh, anyone who's picked up my books knows that all the illustrations are in black and white. Because because uh, when I did uh, Folk Magic and Healing, obviously I knew that um, black and white printing is cheaper than colour. And at the time I was like, oh, I'm going to print this myself. It's going to be self-published, so I'll just keep it cheap and do black and white illustrations. So I hadn't drawn in colour for ages. And so this is actually my chance to really learn how to paint and to really kind of bring some great colours in there. And you can actually see um, some previews of some of the cards that I've done on the site already. I'm really excited for it. Um, I've got about a month left before I have to finish all the artwork for it. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, I've had a year to do this. I should be further ahead. <laughs> I just looked it up. It's beautiful. Thank I'll be pre-ordering it as soon as yes. we end this recording. <laughs> yeah, I'm, oh, Vez, I'm really that's amazing. <sighs> It's so interesting. I feel like I live on Liminal, but I miss so much. I love Liminal. And I love Sarah, who works at Liminal, who we get to talk to a, a, a ton on Instagram. I, I just feel like they do some amazing... I'm so glad you found them. They found you. All that good stuff because, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're putting out some amazing people like you and your work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And would you mind shouting out your online store? It is crowandcrown.store. Okay. Oh my gosh, so, Fez, I had no idea that was you. I <laughs> I go to that site. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Me. <laughs> it's one of those ones where it's it's just my store, so it's just like a, a one artist thing. But I've kind of packaged it like, well, I could be a company, you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's beautiful. And, and it, Thank you. And now all of my click, 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 click stuff is all, all right there. Oh, sometimes I feel like a detective and sometimes I just feel clueless. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to us all. And you have an online gaming. Is that open to the public or is that a private um, endeavor? Oh, you just run campaigns for like your group, right? Oh, yeah. These these are just yeah. private. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Darn. I yeah, went in on sorry. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny, actually, because a lot of the people I play with are just, we're friends where we all used to live together and then we've kind of moved across the country. Mm-hmm. But I have just started one with a, um, a friend of a friend, and I think he lives in, he's six hours behind us, so he must be Central America, like, cent- mm. I don't know what you call it, but like yeah. Central Band. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite nice actually playing with people in different time zones. But then he's always kind of saying, oh, yeah, I just had breakfast. <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> one of our one of our party is in the Ukraine. And uh, so we have to we have to campaign early in the morning on Saturdays because mm. otherwise she's like, well, it's 1 a.m. here. Yep. <laughs> like, we're not trying to do that to you. <laughs> yeah, he uh, we play on a Thursday and he he has just told his work that he will have a half day on Thursday. So he like works. I think he works in the afternoon, but he plays with us in the morning and then goes to work afterwards. So the things we do for games. 
Well, Fez, thank you so much. And we would love to have you back when the next opportunity arises. <laughs> and I would love to come back. Oh, thanks for all your Yay. time today. What a joy talking to you. So this week, fam, instead of sending up Sparks uh, in the traditional way, we are just going to uh, reiterate, shout out all of the awesome ways that you can connect with Fez. We'll tag her Instagram. Uh, we'll leave in the show notes her store, which is called the crowandcrown.store. And um, also we will put a link on where you can pre-order the incredibly beautiful oracle card deck that she is creating with liminal 11 cannot wait for that to come out find her books folk magic and healing and botanical curses and poisons the shadow lives of plants there you go we're very excited we're all we're both a little starstruck thank you for joining us for this amazing opportunity to talk to fez and uh, until next time be well harm none and don't forget you are magic Hey, everybody. If you like this show or you know someone who would like this show, feel free to share it and like and then rate and review us. Reviews, even if it's just like a smiley face emoji or a little thumbs up, a review helps us get seen by other people. Um, so if you have the time, it costs nothing. Please drop us a line. And a follow on Spotify or iHeartRadio is also very helpful depending on where you listen to us. So thank you. And you can find us on Instagram at Bonfire Babble, Twitter, Bonfire Babble Podcast, Facebook, Bonfire Babble Podcast, and our Gmail, Bonfire Babble Podcast at gmail.com. That's a place you can go to sign up for our newsletter or to ask us any questions. We would love to hear from you. Heck yeah. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish tribe. For more information, reach out to realrent.org.